Hi, y'all, and welcome back to Give Me the Creeps with Abby and Daniela. Hello. Happy uh, Black History Month. Yes, Black History Month is upon us. Lots of learning, lots of celebrating, um, and still yet lots of work to do. So with that being said, this is the final part, part three, of my Martin Luther King series. If you have not heard parts one and two and would like to, I would love that. So please go back and do so. I am kicking this segment off with information I learned off an Unsolved Mysteries episode leading to research um, more on this case. So I am going to probably break down what they said, but not yet. Um, The initial capture of Ray held no questions as he held a full life of crime. But before we cover the honored civil rights leader's undoing, we must go back and discuss an event that would end up being Martin Luther King's final fight for justice. And for this part, I watched a Smithsonian documentary called MLK, The Assassination Tapes. Very good, very useful information. Lots of interviews, uh, firsthand interviews from his associates, etc. So I recommend it. And I will be playing some clips from that shortly whenever I discuss his assassination. I mentioned the Poor People's Campaign, and it still exists, so if you want to learn about it and its mission, you can go to www.poorpeoplescampaign.org. Martin Luther King believed in equality and the betterment of our country and looked to help those living in poverty. There was going to be a revolution of values in America, starting with us shifting the focus from supporting our troops in Vietnam to supporting those struggling here in our own country. So to officially begin from this point, MLK announces the Poor People's Campaign at a staff retreat for the SCLC in November of 1967. And we remember the SCLC is the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. So it's a group of young uh, men who are helping this cause. And it's honestly quite simple. Just because certain groups, specifically African-Americans, now had equal access to a lot of things, way more than before, it does not mean that they were equal. And not even that. The community had been held back in so many ways. And at this point, they were just starting and therefore had nothing. And uh, to build on to nothing is pretty difficult. So not compared to those who had held those opportunities previously anyway. So in comparison, the equality was not really there. Unrest would soon fall upon Memphis, Tennessee. These conditions were amping up for the perfect storm. Sanitation workers were making 65 cents an hour without overtime pay. Many were eligible for welfare and food stamps because the pay was so low. Then tragedy leads to action. On February 1st, 1968, two workers, Nicole Cole and Robert Walker, were trying not to get wet in the rain by climbing into the truck they worked in. The switch would malfunction from time to time, and this time they were crushed to death. The workers had been lobbying the city for properly functioning equipment, but when the city refused to provide compensation to the deceased men's families, employees walked off the job. Wait, so you said 65 cents an hour? Yes. Was that normal? Like that was minimum wage or that? It was, um, it was normal for black men in the sanitation route. Um, White people were paid differently or they did a different job to where they made more. More. Um, And, uh, and yeah, no overtime, you know, if it's raining, if it's snowing, the trash is getting picked up at the same price, 65 cents an hour. What the fuck? And then they 
died horrifically. Yeah, they got mangled. Um, the part of the documentary discussing that was just, it was horrible for them to try to get the bodies out because it was, they were so mangled and crushed oh in the, God. in the trash and, you know, dying in trash. Like that's just so oh. horrible. Um, so 11 days later, frustrated by the city's response to the latest event in a long pattern of neglect and abuse of its black employees, 1,300 black men from the Memphis Department of Public Works went on strike. Sanitation workers led by garbage collector turned union organizer T.O. Jones and supported by the president of the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, the AFSCME, Jerry Wirth demanded recognition of their union, better safety standards, and a decent wage. Civil disobedience pursued via strike was refusing to work but not causing any serious trouble. Nonviolent, you know. But however, on February 23, 1968, police confronted peaceful, peaceful protesters with tear gas during a sit-in with a few hundred people. Meeting in a church basement on twenty-fourth of uh, February 24th, 150 local ministers formed the Community on the Move for Equality, the C-O-M-E, under the leadership of King's longtime ally, local minister James Lawson. The C-O-M-E committee uh, committed to the use of nonviolent civil disobedience to fill Memphis jails and bring attention to the plight of the sanitation workers. By the beginning of March, local high school and college students, nearly a quarter of them white, were participating along garbage, alongside garbage workers in daily marches, and over 100 people, including civil, several ministers, had been arrested. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the strike gets national attention. Martin Luther King heads there and l- lends his support, offering SCLC's financial support for their cause. Um, Dr. Martin Luther King said it best and would say it today, I'm sure. It is criminal to have people working a full-time job getting part-time income. Mm-mm. He had been hearing directly from those leading the sit-ins and strikes, but didn't make it to Memphis until March 18, 1968. He had been advocating for social causes now for the economic security of the poor and his poor people's campaign, and this cause fit right into his plans. Reverend James Lawson asked King to lend his voice to the struggle. It's important to mention that workers had gone on strike before in hopes of having their union recognized as well as a raise in their wages. But now that King was at their side, real change was possible once again. Henry Loeb, mayor of Memphis, stood his ground and ignored the demands. He said the strike was putting the public safety at risk and the garbage needed to be taken, and it would. The union, which had been granted a charter by the AFSCME in 1964, had attempted a strike in 1966, but failed in large part because workers were unable to arouse the support of Memphis religious community or the middle class. Conditions for black sanitation workers worsened when Henry Loeb became mayor in January 1968. Loeb refused to take dilapidated trucks out of service or pay overtime when men were forced to work late night shifts. What the fuck? Why? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. MLK gave a speech to a 25,000 person crowd in Memphis on March 18th, where he said, whenever you are engaged in work that serves humanity and it is for the building of humanity, it has dignity and it has worth. 
<clears throat> the largest indoor gathering uh, during the civil rights movement that anyone had ever seen was was this, was on March 18th. He had praised their hard work and told them to keep sticking together, essentially. He encouraged the group to support the sanitation strike by going on a citywide um, a citywide stoppage and would return Friday, March 22nd to lead a protest through the city. He left, but two of the members of the SCLC, James Bevel and Ralph Abernathy, remained to organize the march and work stoppage. On March 22nd, there was a, a snowstorm and the march was rescheduled for March 28th. It's estimated that 22,000 students skipped class to attend. King arrived in Memphis, Tennessee on March 28, 1968, and Lawson led the minister through the streets linked arm in arm. Chaos erupted on the streets as the crowd had grown very large, and a group not affiliated with Martin Luther King planned a Martin Luther King's planned march began breaking windows or something along those lines, and that lit the green light for the police to become aggressive. The protest was shut down as Dr. King was rushed from the area where violence soon took over. Lawson told the crowd to go home as the demonstration was over. Downtown shops were looted, and a 16-year-old was killed by a police officer. <laughs> police followed demonstra demonstrators back to a church. Claiborne Temple and released tear gas inside, clubbing people as they lay on the ground trying to breathe. Oh my goodness. Mm -hmm. The mayor called in for uh, martial law and brought in 4,000 National Guard troops, but the protests continued. Over 200 striking workers marched with their signs that read, I am a man. Dr. King led a news conference where he said he had been unaware of the divisions within the community and that especially... He had no idea of the presence in Memphis in Memphis of the youth group committed to black power. The group is known as the Invaders. They were accused of starting the violence. He considered not coming back since that's not how he accomplishes things. However, he knew that he needed to follow this through as he had told the public to do the same at his uh, speech the other day. <clears throat> On April 3rd, King returned to Memphis. He had been persuaded by a group of sanitation workers to speak. This is when he gives another well-known speech, I've been to the mountaintop. The words are powerful, but what stands out is this would be known as his final speech before his assassination. Many believe that his speech clearly foreshadowed his death, and some think that he might have known that his time had run out. Also, as we discussed in part two, he had already been threatened by the FBI at this point and essentially blackmailed into taking his own life. And since he hadn't, I'm sure he was wondering who would step up to the plate. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Quit walking around, Franklin. This is serious. Okay. He actually sat. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> On April 4th, 1968, as he and his people got ready for dinner, King was shot at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis. Again, civil unrest would ensue, causing the authorities to come in heavy. Lawson made a radio announcement to calm the city of Memphis while Mayor Loeb called in the state police and the National Guard. At 7 p.m., curfew was put into place, and the white and black ministers pled with Loeb to comply with the union's requests, but he still didn't. People gathered outside of the hotel as King lay bleeding on the second-story balcony outside of the room where he was staying. People heard the firecracker sound when the shot was fired, suspected to be across the street from a brick building's open window. At 6.07 p.m., a man was seen running south on Main Street, a young white male, well-dressed. They reported he would be in a white Mustang fleeing the city. At 7 p.m., the shooting is reported on the news. 
Reverend Jesse Jackson is on the news at this time giving a witness statement to police and to the media. He was struck on the back of the neck and rushed to St. Joseph's Hospital by 6.15. This is Martin Luther King. Um, Mm -hmm. Martin Luther King was struck on the back of the neck with the bullet, and he was rushed to St. Joseph's Hospital by 6.15. He was in the ER in critical condition. 20 to 30 doctors worked on him, and he had lost so much blood. At 7.05 p.m., Martin Luther King is pronounced dead. And he was just standing on the balcony? He, they had gone inside. He was with his um, associates and he was the only one to walk back out of the room before Mm -hmm. everyone else. I think there were maybe two other men that were a little ways from him, but they were not like right next to him or anything. But yeah, he, they, they walked out, they were about to leave for dinner. And right when he opened the door, he stood and then he he was shot. Um, And I'm going to play a clip now from the Smithsonian documentary. Standing on a balcony in the hotel room, getting ready to go to dinner. I was going to my house for dinner, as a matter of fact. And so I said, Doc, you ready to go? He said, um, so yes, yes, I say, let's get ready to go right now. You did hear a shot. You know, we heard what sounded just like a firecracker, a loud, real, a real loud shot. I said, Dr. King, that was it. And the bullet exploded in his face. And he had fallen backwards. I heard somebody holler, oh, Lord. The bullet knocked him up off of his feet in that direction against that ledger over there. Did Dr. King say anything? He didn't say anything. He just, he didn't say anything at all. It's a hectic scene tonight. The bullet struck Dr. King in the back of the neck. He was rushed to St. Joseph Hospital in critical condition. Well, I just was told that he had been shot. The report I got was in the shoulder. It was serious. That was the report I got from Reverend Andrew Young. He is in the emergency room and he is in critical condition. And there was, oh, 20 or 30 doctors. And they tried external heart massage. And his respiration muscles were paralyzed and everything else was paralyzed. Okay. 7.05 p.m. April 4th, 1968, Martin Luther King pronounced God knows this is the most tragic thing that has ever happened in, in my life. I cannot in any way try to describe to you the pain and the shock that I feel or this very dreary and moment in the life of this city and the life of this nation and in my own personal life. The pathology and the sickness and the neurosis of, of Memphis and of this racist society in which we live is that that really pulled the trigger. To some extent, Dr. King has been a buffer the last two years between the black community and the white community. The white people do not know it, but the white people's best friend is dead. And that's the part I wanted because I hadn't thought of it that way that um, he was, he was essentially keeping the peace Yeah, through his form of activism. So mm-hmm. by uh, pulling him out of the game, the whole nonviolence thing just felt out the window, you know? Yeah. Uh, let me see. So he didn't say anything whenever he got shot. No, Mm-mm. it happened so quick. He turned, he opens the door. And 
I don't know if he turned around at all because it hits him like on the right, I believe, on the back of the neck. And so he might have been. Paralyzed? Yeah, his muscles wouldn't. Uh, when they were trying to manually pump his heart with their hands, it wouldn't go because it was just not enough blood to, to pump. Oh my goodness gracious. By that time. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, I think if anything, he might have turned because he was waiting for people to keep coming out of the room so they could right. leave. So I'm assuming that's why he kind of turned and that's when it happened. And um, let me go back. Let's see. So that was Jesse Jackson, and he phrased it so eloquently that the white people didn't know it, but they had just lost their best friend. Mm -hmm. At 8 p.m., presidential candidate Senator Robert Kennedy made a stop in Indianapolis. He hoped to keep the city from rioting. He held a press conference to report what happened. Some very sad news for all of you. Could you lower those signs, please? I have some very sad news for all of you, and I think uh, sad news for all of our fellow citizens people who love peace all over the world and that is that martin luther king was shot and was killed tonight oh my god everybody screams what yeah we need in the united states is not division what we need in the united states is not hatred what we need in the united states is not violence and lawlessness but is love and wisdom and compassion toward one another and a feeling of justice toward those who still suffer within our country. My name is So the city that he was in while he was he was campaigning to become president of the United States, and that was one of the cities he was campaigning in, and because he gave that press conference, that was one of the areas that did not riot that night. <clears throat> so it worked. Many leaders and followers of King pled with their cities to remain peaceful and to not give up to the and not give in to the hate because of the anger. They urged people to go inside and stay in their homes. But Memphis became a hot spot for riots and fires. As people figure out which route to take, the authorities are scouring Memphis, Memphis for the man who shot King. Johnson has thirteen thousand federal troops uh, outside to stop rioters from reaching the White House. Uh, so, yeah, this is Lyndon B. Johnson. He's the president currently after Kennedy had been assassinated. Just to brush us up on that uh, part of history real quick. And one hour after King's death, Atlanta Mayor Ivan Allen tells Coretta Scott what happened to her husband. An he hour had, after? Uh, mm-hmm. It was chaotic, so it hadn't gotten back to her um, until th that point. So he had heard at the airport what happened and he and his wife escorted Coretta Scott home. Johnson was going to have a strategy com conference for Vietnam uh, in Honolulu, but that was canceled. President is concerned about the civil unrest and asks for Atlanta's mayor's advice. Chicago and New York and other cities went up in flames as people took out their anger on their towns. It was a very dark time. One day after the murder, there's a suspect, but they can't find him. There are 20 to 30 officers near King um, and in the area at the time, but the assassin was able to, to get to him anyway and kill him. President Lyndon B. Johnson charged Undersecretary of Labor James Reynolds with negotiating a solution and end ending the strike. It had gone on for 57 days. So, um, so with King gone, he sends 
James Reynolds in to try to negotiate with the mayor of Memphis to help the sanitation workers out, especially after everything that's happened. So over two days, people came to the R.S. Lewis funeral home in Memphis to see King in his open casket, and thousands saw him. Thousands came to pay their respects. Then his casket was loaded into a charred airplane, chartered airplane that was sent by Robert Kennedy to return King home with his family. On April 8th, an estimated 42,000 people led by Coretta Scott King, SCLC, and the union leaders silently marched through Memphis in honor of King, demanding that Loeb give in to the union's requests. In front of City Hall, the AFSCME pledged to support the workers until, quote, we have justice. April 11, 1968, Johnson signed civil rights bill prohibiting discrimination in housing and protecting civil rights workers. As for the sanitation workers' fight, negotiators finally reached a deal on April 16th, allowing the city council to recognize the union and guaranteeing a better wage. Although the deal brought the strike to an end, several months later, the union had to threaten another strike to press the city to follow through with its commitment. Not only was this carried to fruition after his death, but the Poor People's Campaign also happened. Inspiring, truly, because 7,000 people put it into action by building plywood tents where the Poor People's March would take place. King believed that African Americans and other minorities would never enter full citizenship until they had economic security. Through nonviolent direct action, King and the SCLC hoped to focus the nation's attention on economic inequality and poverty. This is a highly significant event, King told delegates at an early planning meeting, describing the campaign as the beginning of a new cooperation and understanding, and a, de- and a determination by poor people of all colors and backgrounds to assert and win their right to a decent life and respect for their culture and dignity. SCLC, um, oh, many leaders of American Indian, Puerto Rican, Mexican American, and poor white communities pledged themselves to the Poor People's Campaign. Some in the SCLC thought King's campaign too ambitious and the demands too amorphous, although King appraised the simplicity of the campaign's goals, saying, It's as pure as a man needing an income to support his family. He knew that the campaign was inherently different from others the SCLC had attempted. We have an ultimate goal of freedom, independence, self-determination, whatever we want to call it, but we aren't going to get all of that now. We aren't going to get all of that next year. He he commented at a staff meeting on the 17th of January, 1968. Let's find something that is so possible, so achievable, so pure, so simple that even the backlash can't do much to deny it. And yet something so non-token and so basic to life that even the black nationalists can't disagree with it that much. So Ralph Abernathy took over as the new president of the SCLC after his passing. And on Mother's Day of uh, May 12th, 1968, thousands of of women led by Coretta Scott King formed the first wave of demonstrators. So the ladies went first in the Poor People's March and Martin Luther King's wife led. So it was a very powerful sight. The next day, Resurrection City, a temporary settlement of tents and shacks, was built on the mall in Washington, D.C. People made daily pilgrimages to various federal agencies demanding economic justice. Midway through the campaign, Robert Kennedy, whose wife had attended the Mother's Day opening of Resurrection City, was assassinated. Out of respect for the campaign, his funeral procession passed through Resurrection City. 
The Department of the Interior forced Resurrection City to close on June 24, 1968, after the permit to use the park had expired. Although the campaign succeeded in small ways, such as qualifying 200 counties for free surplus food distribution and securing promises from several federal agencies to hire poor people to help run programs for the poor, Abernathy felt these concessions were insufficient. But wow, the effort and the strength in numbers after King's assassination is so beautiful. Many people um, believed his death would not be in vain. A year later, Ted Kennedy, Democratic Senator of Massachusetts, gives a speech. Hundreds gathered to honor Dr. King, and Kennedy spoke of creating conditions of hope so that the peace can thrive. Now, back to his killer's investigation. James Earl Ray was arrested in London after his palm print print was used to identify him. His prints were on the... Yes. Oh, girl. Yeah. It's It's a wild ride. So... He's arrested in London. How he got there, people still think that's the main reason why they think they were keeping him safe. Because how the heck he got that far, they have no idea. Yeah, then right. again, it uh, it did take a while for them to identify the prints on the weapon. But we will get to all of that. <clears throat> His prints were on the weapon that killed King. And it just so happened that the weapon was left at the building where King was shot. It was like nearby. So convenient. All these conveniences are just keep them in mind. So how did he get that far from Memphis? He pleads guilty and is given 99 years. Easy and case closed, right? Wrong. Let's start with what witnesses say about this event in history. As I mentioned, um, it's episode 12 of season five of Unsolved Mysteries. If you want like a shortened, condensed version of it. But basically, it reads as how I'm about to describe. Across from the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee, where Martin Luther King was shot, is a housing building run by Bessie Brewer. And it's known as Bessie's um, Rooming House. On April 4th, before 6 p.m., William Anschutz, a tenant, couldn't open the communal bathroom that's in the hallway. It was locked. James Earl Ray sat prepping his rifle inside that bathroom and aimed out the window and fired, hitting King. According to the government, Ray returned to his room and wrapped the overnight bag he brought and the rifle in the bedspread and was seen by another tenant named Charles Stevens um, as he ran out of the building. And believing to see police cars, he drops the bundle outside the Knipe Amusement Company. A white car sped away, possibly a Mustang. The cops got the uh, dropped items and identified the prints on the weapon belonging to Ray. He was not in the country anymore by this time. Two months later, the London Heathrow Airport Police arrested Ray as he attempted to board a flight to Brussels. On March 10, 1969, Ray pled guilty to the murder of Martin Luther King and was sentenced to 99 years in the state penitentiary. But just three days later, he fired his attorney and took it all back, claiming he was used in a conspiracy. Over the, over the years, he, uh, this garnered attention as well as Ray himself garnered some support because the investigation was not operated to confirm that it wasn't a conspiracy. So people were like, why didn't they even, think that it could possibly be that and try to prove against it or prove confirm it you know right so who is ray i'm going to use britannica's short and sweet version of this james earl ray born march 10th 1928 in alton illinois a day after your birthday everybody's pisces all these people Mm -hmm. dang 
So he died. Uh, he already died, but I won't give that part away just yet. But he was born in Alton, Illinois in 1928, and he's classified as an American assassin of the African-American civil rights leader Martin Luther King. Ray had been a small-time crook, a robber of gas stations and stores who had served time in prison, once in Illinois and twice in Missouri, and received a suspended sentence in Los Angeles. He escaped from the Missouri State Penitentiary on April 23, 1967, and in Memphis, Tennessee nearly a year later. On April 4th, 1968, from a window of a neighboring rooming house, he shot King, who was standing on the balcony of a motel room. Ray fled to Toronto and secured a Canadian passport through travel agency, flew to London, and then to Lisbon, uh, where he secured a second Canadian passport, and back to London. And this is all in May of that year, 1968. And on June 8th, he was apprehended by London police at the Heathrow Airport as he was about to embark for Brussels. The FBI had established him as the prime suspect almost immediately after the assassination. Back in Memphis, Ray pled guilty, forfeiting a trial, and was sentenced to 99 years. Months later, he recanted his confession without effect. Um, oh, gosh. On, in June 1977, Ray escaped from Brushy Mountain in Tennessee and remained at large for 54 hours before being recaptured in a massive manhunt. In renouncing his guilt, Ray raised the specter of a conspiracy behind King's murder, but offered scant evidence to support his claim. Later in life, his pleas for a trial were encouraged by some civil rights leaders, notably King's family. So that's the that's the Britannica version. But um, Unsolved Mysteries breaks it down this way. So on April 23rd, 1967, Ray escaped from Jefferson City, Missouri, uh, from the state penitentiary there, and he was serving a 20-year sentence for robbing a grocery store. He fled to Chicago and then to Montreal, Canada, mid-July. He started asking around for a passport. So he was like in the seedy underground trying to solicit, you know, illegal materials, essentially. Mm-hmm. And he was using the name Eric Starvo Galt. Um, Ray said he was approached one day by a man who called himself Raul and he wanted, uh, semen papers, seaman, like seaman, sound like semen, but like mm, Navy. Yes. They're okay. like naval papers to, um, travel. So another version of a passport, I'm assuming. And so he starts asking him about it and they, I guess, came up with some kind of arrangement to do favors in order to get these kinds of documents. So almost nine months later, he was set up as the fall guy for MLK. Apparently, Ray made a deal with Raul to receive papers. He was going to get papers and money, so he agreed, and he thought it was just a smuggling job. So remember Abernathy, mm-hmm. one of uh, one of associates of Martin Luther King? Okay, so hold on. So the illegal deal was this. Smuggle unknown contraband from Montreal to a location near Detroit. He was paid $750 and was then directed to head to Birmingham, Alabama. So he did so. His attorney was William Pepper, and Pepper was an associate of King's. In 1978, Pepper was persuaded to meet with Ray by Ralph Abernathy. Small world, isn't it? Okay. Um, Which is, I mean, it's 10 years after King is killed and everything, but um, Ray had fired his initial attorney and then had William Pepper as his attorney. So Pepper is convinced that Raul is the key to the conspiracy because this is when Ray is telling his new lawyer everything. Mm-hmm. So Pepper is convinced that Raul is the key to the conspiracy. He held on to the promise of the travel documents. And so 
While in Alabama, Raul gave Ray $2,000 to buy a car, and on August 30th, 1967, he bought a white 1966 Mustang. He then drove it to Nuevo Laredo, Mexico, for more smuggling with Raul. Then he drove to L.A. to wait further instructions. Mid-March of 1968, Raul told Ray to get to Atlanta. March 29th, five days before the assassination, um, it went like this, according to Ray. Raul told Ray to buy a gun. He had a client wanting to buy guns, so he told Ray that he would have to get a sample weapon to show the gun runners, and then they would decide if they would buy in bulk later. And so Ray believed him and was like, okay, let me go buy a gun. So he buys a um, .243 caliber rifle with a telescopic sight, and it was purchased later that day that they made that arrangement and Ray acted like he didn't know anything about rifles. So the, the guy at the store had to kind of help him figure out what he needed and everything. And he just seemed unfamiliar with the weapon. So he, he brought the wrong kind because he showed it to Raul and he was given specific instructions on what to buy Remington model 760 game master pump action. So he exchanged the guns and gave the new one to Raul at the new rebel motel in Memphis on April 3rd, 1968. That was the last time Ray saw that rifle, according to him. On April 4th, 1968, Ray met with Raul at Jim's Grill in Memphis. Raul told him to rent a room at Bessie's rooming house upstairs and await instructions. At 4 p.m., under the name John Willard, he rented room 306 upstairs at Bessie's rooming house. He was told to bring an overnight bag and leave the Mustang parked nearby because Raul wanted to use it that night. He says he left the motel at around 5 p.m. and didn't return. He drove the Mustang and went to a service station just before 6 p.m. At 6.01 p.m., King was shot. He was driving from the gas station. Ray was driving from the gas station back to the rooming house, noticing that there were police barricading certain streets. So he got to the corner of Calhoun and Maine, and he saw all the commotion going on, and he's on the run because, you know, he escaped from prison is doing all this crazy smuggling. So he's, mm. he, according to him, he sees the cops and he's just like, nah. And so he never returns back to Bessie's rooming house. He just uh, takes a left and gets to London pretty much. Um, so he's a fugitive. <clears throat> so in the army, Ray was an M1 and he was the lowest level of skill for like shooting. And he wasn't a great shooter. So um, with, but with the view, other people defend it by saying that it was like less than a hundred yards, the, the bathroom where he so-called, you know, shot King from the window. Um, it was less than a hundred yards. It was a clear shot. You know, anybody could have done it. That's what people say, but others mm-hmm. claim that it requires some skill to be able to shoot a rifle, like a sniper, you know? Um, and they're saying <clears> he couldn't do that. Yes. Some people say they, they use that as, as reasoning that he wasn't even a great shooter, you know, as if he couldn't have practiced between, you know, mm. before and then. He never said why they chose or like, cause he's supposed to go back to this. Uh, Raul. Yes. Like, why did he choose? Why did Raul tell him to shoot um, MLK? Like what? Well, Ray is saying he never shot him. Oh, so he just went, he was just, he was driving. Yes. He was just driving the car, um, at the exact time when Martin Luther King was shot, he was driving it to the gas station, pulls around the corner, sees all this commotion and he leaves. So according to Ray, he didn't ever see the rifle, touch the rifle, shoot the rifle. 
but he had it. No, he gave it to Raul. Oh, he gave it to Raul. Okay. okay. According to him. According to him, he gave it to him, and that was the last time he saw it. It was two days before the actual assassination. Okay. Um, So he was just pretty much – he was going to go get a tire fixed is, I think, what he ended up saying. Um, So he he went, and they said they were too busy, so that's why he immediately left the service station. Okay. Um, So – um, with the view of King being clear and less than 100 yards away, it, it seems possible witnesses would sway the logic here. Between the boarding house and the motel, there are bushes. At least two witnesses claim a shot came from the ground and not the window. They saw someone in white run across that spot when the shot rang out, and one of the witnesses was King's chauffeur. Now, the tenant witness, Charles Stevens, that claims Ray you know, ran out with the bundle or whatever, um, he was so drunk, and his statement held little weight. So they only asked if he heard a loud noise. They could only, like, simplify it and say, like, did you hear a loud noise? And did you see anyone run through here? And with that, he would say yes and yes. But he didn't know specifically who. Pepper says that he wanted the reward money. And remember, Pepper is the new attorney that Ray hired. Mm-hmm. Many believe that dropping the evidence was staged. Investigators dusted the, the rooming house for prints, and none of them were raised. So he what? wasn't in there very much. Um, the, he, they didn't get any fingerprints, which some, this FBI, one FBI guy that was getting interviewed on Unsolved Mysteries was saying, like, that's not, um, that's not abnormal to not find. And I'm like, what do you mean that's not abnormal to not find any fingerprints from the person you say was in this room? Right. Unless they really did touch nothing. He might have just not touched anything at and all. And they could, at the time, what were they able to like find like shotgun residue and shit? Ah, you're gonna love this. They did not do ballistic testing. <sighs> of course they didn't. But was it a so, thing then? Uh, yes, it was. It must have been. It might have not been as advanced as it is now, but it it was not done on the weapon that was fired, according to them at King. So that's why people are so confused about what happened is because they didn't do certain things and it's like due diligence to do it, rather whether you have a suspect in custody or not. Right. Because um, he might have, I'm not saying Ray didn't do anything. He might be involved, but you still need to find out the whole story. Right. Um, so once they got him, they just were like, okay, we're done. But the tenant, Charles Stevens, was so drunk and so they couldn't say that it was him or not and many believe that that when he dropped the evidence that was all staged um two prints were on the rifle that were raised and a swab test on the gun that ray returned to see if he had fired it was done but not on the weapon that killed king so they did a swab test on the rifle that he exchanged for the correct one but not on the one that killed king that doesn't Mm, I know. And then there was a spent shell in the chamber of the murder weapon. So it was apparent that it was fired, but the FBI couldn't find the bullet that matched the rifle, just the type of rifle that the bullet would work with. They they knew that, but they didn't know that if that bullet came from that rifle. Isn't that dumb? Yes, that's... It didn't... It wasn't... Yeah, it was just lazy. So Mm -hmm. then there's the question of why did Ray plead, plead guilty? He claims that he was coerced by his initial attorney, Percy Foreman, who wanted exclusive publishing rights to his story. Get the fuck out of here. And 
That's what Ray says. And Ray says that if he had claimed conspiracy early on, it would have been public domain. So then his attorney couldn't use that. Right. So <laughs> I don't know. FBI claims they couldn't find any kind of Raul character. In 1975, Harold Weisberg filed a lawsuit against the FBI. He was a former defense investigator who wanted the truth. He went through 60,000 pages of documents that the FBI sent to him after he filed for that lawsuit. And about three years after getting them, he found that Ray had been involved with J.C. Hardin. And he went through the FBI files from the L.A. office, and that's where he found this. Weisberg believes this evidence is proof of conspiracy. J.C. Hardin called Ray from Atlanta, and it doesn't appear Ray ever called back. But then three weeks before the assassination, Hardin went to see Ray in L.A. And that's documented in these documents. Hmm. So the real question then was, is Hardin Raul? Oh, because he gave him a call, told him, give me a call. Because he left a message at the hotel that Ray was staying at. He never actually got in contact with Ray while he was in L.A. And that's why he took a trip there. So then in 1968, the FBI pursued the sketch that they got of Hardin. But as soon as Ray was arrested, the investigation was dropped. So they never found out who this J.C. Hardin is. They didn't care to. And so that's where Weisberg was like, okay, who is that, though? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so Ray was refused, uh, has refused to say if Hardin is Raul and he won't identify Raul. So then that's like, okay, then why are you lying? Yeah. <laughs> How annoying. So many believe that there should have been conspiracy investigations at all. And that's the bottom line is they should have just done it and a thorough one. And at least to confirm that there wasn't one, if there wasn't. And in 1989, the documentary for the BBC um, which was called Who Killed Martin Luther King, gives more details. So I recommend watching that one because it's Ray directly getting interviewed in prison while he's there. Um, so y'all can go see if his body language gives away anything or what. But the other thing was the trial had taken only two and a half hours when they got um, Ray. With and they... No jury, right? Uh-uh. He, he decided to just take a guilty plea. That's also according, weird. yeah, and and the in that BBC doc they really linger on did the attorney tell him to plea guilty or did he tell him not to and Ray did it anyway and the attorney claims that he didn't but it was found in the paperwork that Ray made a deal with him that he would plea guilty because his attorney said so so I don't know but the attorney like I said the attorney might not wanting be wanting to say that he did that he did, but he wanted to be able to use the story. So he wanted him right. to plead guilty. So we will never know in that, in that aspect, but um, people do believe that the verdict was rushed to avoid any kind of talk of conspiracy. Right. Just right. to avoid it completely. Like we got him. It's good. We're good to go. Mm -hmm. The driver that I mentioned earlier, that was one of the witnesses, um, Solomon Jones was under the, the balcony when King was shot above him. And as he, watched and he heard the shot he saw a sniper with a white sheet over his face duck down um, into the bushes where he heard the shot come from and then without the sheet the guy like rolled out of the bushes and then walked to the wall and jumped down from it but at this point others had begun jumping from the wall and bl he blended in with the crowd so there was no mm -hmm. way to like see where he went 
But um, a lot of people were jumping down off that wall after they heard the shot and they saw everybody gathering on that balcony. So um, it was difficult to see where the guy went. And yet the only one to have seen Ray at all after the shot was fired was that Charles Stevens guy. And on the day of the assassination, Lloyd Jowers, the owner of Jim's Grill, which is the restaurant right above or right below the housing unit, denied that Stephen denied Stevens any alcohol because he was already hammered when he got to the grill. Jesus. He sold reliable at all. Exactly. So he sold him two quarts of beer to go, but he didn't serve him in in the restaurant. To go, dang. I know, right? Imagine if he could well, do now that. To go. Kind of. In Texas. Yeah, you're right. Oh wow, cool. Yeah, they you can DoorDash that shit. I figured, but I that's crazy that you could just go in and get I guess if it's not it's if as long as it's sealed or whatever. But anyways. I don't I don't He was from right upstairs. So maybe that's why. I wonder. Maybe. Either way. Because he he had to do is go home, which is just upstairs. But yeah, okay. So he he gets Two quarts of beer to go, and it was about 4.10, and Lloyd knows this because he had just started his shift at 4 p.m., so it was right after he had arrived. So he tells Stephen, you know, you're too drunk, I can't serve you in-house, but I'll give you these quarts of beer. So then the cab driver, who was going to drive Stevens, said that he was so drunk he couldn't get out of bed, and so he left without him. (laughs) He went inside to get him and everything, and uh, he heard on the radio that MLK had been shot on his way back to the train station. Um, then CBS asks Steven on camera, Stevens on camera with a photo of Ray, if that's who he saw. And he says, no. And he only saw the profile. And he goes on to say that the guy he saw was leaner and like had a different nose and he describes it, but he was trashed. So that sucks. Yeah. Stevens was kept in protective custody for weeks before the trial, though, just in case, because he was the only one to say that he saw anyone run out of that building. I just don't understand. He was trashed. Like, there are Mm -hmm. witnesses that they, in other cases, that they don't use because they fucking were, like, sleeping or something. And this motherfucker was trashed. I know. Wrong time. Uh, he might have been on alcoholic because that's what they were insinuating, but who knows? Who the fuck? Like, of all the people. I know. That's. Um, <clears throat> it didn't help that Ray's story kept changing either. Three days after pleading guilty, he recanted his confession and for the next 28 years maintained his innocence. But by then, it was too late. At one point, he claimed a person named Raul told him to kill King, but there's no convincing proof of such an idea, according to sides. Um, I'm using, I think this is my Atlas Obscura article. Um, Or it might be my Time article. I should have put it on here. Um, So Atlas Obscura shared this thing, and it's called Peek Inside the 1977 Report Detailing FBI's Misconduct While Surveilling Martin Luther King. It's from 2017, and it's got the document screenshots on here and everything. In January of 1977, FBI Director Clarence M. Kelly received a much-anticipated memo from the Office of Professional Responsibility informing him that the Martin Luther King Task Force had completed its investigation. The task force had been 
had been formed the year prior in response to the fallout from a congressional hearing that had revealed the extent of the Bureau's domestic surveillance, particularly in regards to civil rights leaders such as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, The revelations had been so damning, in fact, that they had cast doubts on the integrity of the FBI's investigation into King's murder and added credence to the theories that the Bureau was somehow responsible. So here's where it's uh, the surveillance looked so messed up that they were like, they have to be involved. So then FBI had to double down and prove that they weren't involved. But disproving the latter was the task force primary concern. So the bulk of the report involved reviewing the case files for evidence that the FBI had, though action or inaction aided or abetted James Earl Ray. While the report found that the investigation had been hampered, a lack of coordination between the FBI, the attorney general's office, and the Memphis police There was no evidence that the Bureau had done anything to sabotage the investigation and had indeed pursued things within the extent of its abilities. But rather than exonerating the FBI, it was in evaluating those abilities that the task force uncovered its most damning findings. The second, shorter, and more incendiary part of the report covers the extent of the Bureau's surveillance and harassment of King at the behest of J. Edgar Hoover. The task force found the investigation eventually became something of a personal vendetta for Hoover, with certain contel pro elements such as the infamous suicide letter, blatant civil rights violations. The task force was so worried about the extent of this extra-legal surveillance becoming public, either through King's relatives or even worse, FOIA requesters that they recommended the evidence be sealed and destroyed as quickly as possible. The report closes on strong recommendation that in order to avoid risking the loss of the public's faith in the institution, the FBI never again overstep its bounds and engage in this kind of illicit illegal behavior. The reader can decide the extent to which the Bureau decided to heed that advice. The first part of MLK uh, FBI file is embedded below. So, I have all 113 pages right here. And oh, if anybody's Lord. interested, um, it's on atlasobscura.com. So. Oh, my God. The whole thing is um, is there. So if y'all are interested in thumbing through that, go for it. It's crazy. Um, so for the most part, I think it's all in agreement for the most part that Ray is the is the killer. But it's just so jumbly that, I don't know, it doesn't make sense that they didn't do a full, thorough investigation. And so NPR's article from 2018 reads, Despite swirl of conspiracy theories, investigators say the MLK case is closed. Jesus. And it says, authorities have investigated the death of Martin Luther King Jr. five times since his murder. Mm-hmm. Congress, district attorneys, and the Justice Department all have concluded that James Earl Ray shot King as the civil rights icon stood on a motel balcony. That hasn't stopped conspiracy theories from flourishing. Several of King's children said that they can't believe a lone gunman killed their father, especially since he had been hounded by the FBI for years before his murder. Others in the civil rights movement um, say that King led have expressed their doubts too. They three men who have investigated the crime over the past 50 years said they are confident in their conclusions. Even if some questions do linger about conspirators who themselves may have diced died decades ago. You just don't think that these powerful people, these people who are larger than, than life can be killed by somebody 
Some nobody with a gun, said former Shelby County, Tennessee assistant uh, D- district attorney John Campbell. You know, there has to be more involved. Well, sometimes there's not more involved. Walter Cronkite broke the, broke the news to the television audience the night of April 4th, 1968. Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. Police have issued an all-points bulletin for a well-dressed young white man seen running from the scene. After an international manhunt, British police apprehended James Earl Ray at a at an airport in London. Ray, a sometime bank robber, pled guilty to King's murder in 1969 in part to avoid the death penalty. See, that's a big thing that was not mentioned before. It was to avoid the death penalty. And when his uh, attorney had been asked that, if he had to- told him to plead guilty, they asked also, um, did you want him to talk about anything conspiracy related? And, there, and he was like, no. Um, I just didn't want him to die. I didn't want him to be killed. So, oh, Jesus. But Ray backtracked on his story days later, and that has left room for doubt ever since. Eight years after King's death in 1976, Congress launched its own investigation. Martin Luther King used to say that truth crushed to earth will rise again. Then D.C. Delegate Walter Fontroy said this in his opening statement, at the first hearing of the, his assassination panel. We are making a serious effort to establish what, in fact, was the truth. Disclosures that King had been targeted by the FBI and its director for abuse and harassment gave rise to many questions about possible government involvement in his death. The House Select Committee on Assassinations hired engineers to trace the path of the bullet that hit King as he stood on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel. Committee members enlisted forensic experts to study the autopsy report, and they interviewed lots of witnesses. One was the convicted killer, Ray. And so we worried about, was there somebody else involved in King's death, said G. Robert Blakey, chief counsel to the committee, in a recent review. The House investigation found that Ray had purchased the rifle likely to shoot King. Blakey found that no involvement by the FBI or the KKK, but he still wonders if Ray might have been might have believed he could somehow have gotten a financial windfall from killing King. The dilemma today is there's probably no way to pin down those details. Mm -hmm. The truth of the matter is that the conspiracy investigations need to be made at the time of the crime. Blakey says that the FBI could not win approval for wiretaps to snoop on Ray's brothers at the time, and so a key question lingered without a decisive answer. Meanwhile, from prison, Ray continued to maintain his innocence. He attracted allies such as William Pepper, who became his lawyer and who eventually wrote three books on the King assassination. Pepper later told... I know. Um, Pepper later told interviewers he spent five hours interrogating Ray behind bars and came away with the conclusion that Ray didn't do it. They appealed the case. They tried the Supreme Court and no luck. It looked like we were at the end of the road, Pepper recalled years later. And then I came up with an, an idea. Well, look, why don't we try to have a real trial on television? HBO broadcast that mock trial in 1993 and the police jury or the television jury found Ray not guilty. The media interest attracted some new voices, voices like Lloyd Jowers, who owned a bar and grill near the motel in Memphis where King was shot. The claim of another shooter. In 1993, Jowers told ABC's Sam Donaldson that Ray didn't kill King and that he knew who was paid to do it. 
that account provoked a new round of questions about King's murder, but Jowers didn't want to say more unless the district attorney granted him immunity from prosecution. James Earl Ray, ailing the serving and ser- ailing and serving a 99-year prison uh, sentence, was once again pushed for a way to reopen the case, and thus began another investigation. Local prosecutors in Memphis, including John Campbell, were assigned to look at claims by Jowers and others. You know, there was a lot of people that all of a sudden, yes, just came out of the woodwork, Campbell said. Investigators went back and interviewed people who were at Jowers Bar and Grill in 1968. Campbell's investigation concluded that many of those people failed to back him up. One witness who was supporting Jowers decades after the killing allegedly told her sister that she was motivated by the prospect of money. In a call that was overheard by investigators, and Jowers himself changed his tune from what he told the FBI at the time of the murder. Within a couple of weeks, we figured out this first story wasn't going anywhere. It wasn't true, Campbell said. Something else was happening around that time, the launching of another investigation, this time by the Justice Department under President Bill Clinton. Veteran civil rights prosecutor Barry Kowalski, who worked on the federal case against the police who beat Rodney King in 1991, led that effort. We conducted a conscientious and a thorough investigation, just like the four official investigations before it, found no credible evidence or reliable evidence that Dr. King was killed by conspirators who framed James Earl Ray. Justice Department prosecutors interviewed 200 witnesses and reviewed tens of thousands of documents. They found Jowers and the theory of the government of a government-directed conspiracy were not credible, and they wrote that they discounted other allegations, claims that the murder was somehow linked to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Kowalski said that none of the subsequent subsequent theories or inquiries never ever disproved the initial one that Ray killed King acting alone. Mm-mm-mm. What the fuck? So it's all come down to Ray did do it after all. Um, but um, why is the, is the next biggest question. Yeah. And that, uh, gets kind of answered in because I don't know enough about James Earl Ray. I'm sure, I'm sure there's like books about his whole life and where he went and what he did. Mm-hmm. And I, I cut it down quite a bit. So apologies for that. But the time magazine uh, has an article online, what we know about why James Earl Ray killed Martin Luther King Jr. And it's from 2018. Um, I'll skip down to the part in fact, the idea that there had been a conspiracy to kill King, that even if Ray fired the gun, he did so at the behest of larger forces, began to spread right away and not without some reason. As Sides points out, it isn't surprising that members of King's family and his fellow civil rights leaders would have suspected that some larger government conspiracy to kill the minister must be at play. After all, the FBI stalked King. Okay, so... It didn't help that Ray's story kept changing. Three days after pleading guilty, he recanted his confession and for the next 28 years maintained his innocence, but by then it was too late. At one point, he claimed a person named Raoul told him to kill King, but there's no convincing proof of such an idea. Ray was a known criminal on the lam after escaping a Missouri state prison when he committed the assassination. Um... <clears throat> Where did it go? Oh my God, I lost it. No. Oh, okay. 
Ray was a known criminal on the lam after escaping in Missouri State Prison when he committed the assassination and had more than two dozen known alias aliases. Aliases? Aliases? Oh my goodness. <laughs> aliases for himself before he was put behind bars again. He broke out of prisons so many times that he earned the nickname The Mole. Most famously in 1997, a dying Ray told Dexter King, his victim's son, that he didn't do it. And that claim prompted the family to push unsuccessfully for a new trial. Ray died while the campaign was ongoing, but though the King family did win $100, $100 what the, in a 1999 wrongful death suit after the man charged was be, as being part of a conspiracy didn't Just show $100? up to the trial. Yeah, what the? An official inquiry reiterated that the evidence against Ray was overwhelming and that there was no credibility to various theories that anyone else had been involved. Dang okay, it. but why? $100 in a wrongful death suit. Hmm. That's all they could get out of him? Like, that's... Yeah, that's weird. But, okay, didn't so know that. that didn't... Is there more? Like, they didn't say why. Yeah, um, that doesn't mean there are no questions left. Here we go. <clears throat> Ray's unreliability has meant the only way to find out what might have motivated him to, is to study the people he associated with and admired. Those facts leave no surprise as to why a man such as Ray would murder a man whose life's work was focused on racial equality. Ray's lawyer, J.B. Stoner, was a known white supremacist, and Ray, who also made his made clear his admiration for Hitler, had done volunteer work for the 1968 presidential campaign of Alabama's former segregationist, Governor George Wallace, who had gone head-to-head with King in Birmingham, Selma, and Montgomery. But that biography doesn't explain why or how Ray moved from committing property crime and supporting racists to killing a national icon. Something triggered something in him, Side says, but exactly what that trigger was is unclear. Experts have also studied Ray's movements leading up to the assassination, including a mysterious trip to New Orleans that March and a move to Atlanta, the funding and logistics of which raise questions. I do think Ray had help, but I never found any proof that a group helped him, says Sides. I found gaps in his movements that are mysterious and you just don't know who he's meeting with, who he's meeting with. The source of his money is the single biggest question. So despite 50 years of evidence fingering James Earl Ray and a consensus about his role among most scholars who study King, some people remain unconvinced that some Americans didn't trust and still don't trust the government's conclusion on Ray's murder or on King's murder. And it says a lot about what's going on in America in the 1960s and 70s when the Vietnam War and Watergate torpedoed Americans' trust in the government. According to Pew, the percentage of Americans who said they could trust the federal government to do right, to do the right thing nearly always or most of the time went from an all-time high of 77% in 1964 to 36% by the end of the 1970s. Jesus. Okay, so most people that commit crimes that are racially motivated, they own up to that shit and they are proud as fuck about it. Right. So why was he not if that was what they're saying his motivation was? Especially yeah, if his lawyer was a fucking white supremacist. Mm-hmm. Wait, so was it um, Pepper that was the white supremacist or the first one? No, Pepper was the one that met King or met uh, Ray. Ray through Abernathy, which is King's associate. Okay. Um, so it was the first but one. But 
Yeah, there was his name was Stoner, I believe. But then there was another there was another attorney that they showed in um the Unsolved Mysteries episode and his name was like Foreman or something. Mm-hmm. Um and for him to speak to King's son and not That's what I was about to say. He said like why keep saying Yeah, why why keep saying that you didn't? Because at the end of his life, um, James Earl Ray passed away while he was in prison. And at the end of his life, he was still saying that he didn't do it. And like you said, if he's a proud, you know, um, nationalist or whatever, he would be proud to share that he did. And even then, he can't be killed or retried or whatever. That's so crazy. Like, I don't know. That's weird. I guess we don't really know a whole lot about him. I mean, like, Mm -hmm. us in this podcast right now, like, no, so Mm -mm. we can't, like, definitively say that he wouldn't be, like, proud or not. It's just, like, based on what other... Based on, yeah, you would think he would be excited to say he did it. Yeah. Um, And then there's history.com, which I'm just going to skim because I don't know if I missed... There's a lot of names and places and stuff, so let me see... Um, FBI investigators at the time traced the shot to a rooming house across the street and witnesses directed them to a large bundle dropped on the sidewalk. It contained a pair of binoculars, a newspaper with a story about King staying at the Lorraine motel and a 32, uh, 0.30 through 06 Remington game master that had fired one shot. All three bore the fingerprints of an escaped convict named named James Earl Ray. Um, Ray, a white supporter of segregationist George Wallace, was a career criminal who'd been convicted at least four separate times for robbing a cafe, a taxi, a post office, and a grocery store. A year before, he'd escaped from Missouri State Penitentiary while serving his 20-year sentence and was on the lam at the time King was shot. An international manhunt led to his capture. Blah, blah, blah. He confessed. Okay, here we go. He began to claim his innocence, arguing that he had been set up by a man he knew only as Raul. It was Raul, Ray said, who had directed him to buy the gun and the binoculars and rent the room across the street from the motel. He said he wasn't in the room when King was shot, but he was unable to consistently explain where he had been or keep other important details in his story straight. Over several decades, federal investigators have routinely concluded that Raul doesn't exist. This doesn't mean that Ray couldn't have received assistance. Some people had trouble, for example, believing Ray had arranged his international escape all by himself, since he had a track record of getting himself caught more for more minor crimes. Yeah, and that's another thing. Just because this guy's a criminal, that doesn't mean he's a professional criminal. Yeah. To be able to assassinate someone and get away and... He seemed very inept. I have a feeling that's the main reason why um, Pepper and people like that believe him is because he probably doesn't seem like he would even know how to carry this out. Right. <clears throat> right. He's not that smart. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yeah, this is a big deal, a big crime that people are going to be looking for you. And if your picture is on the TV, they're going to recognize you, you know, unless you were smuggled out of the country. Right. Um, it was the fucking FBI... They got him out. They were like, get out of here. They did. Um, they, he made up fucking Raul so that he could just say it was this fucking person. Like that- Zanny the Nanny. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, so when authorities caught him in London, he'd been planning to travel to Rhodesia, which I don't know where they got this from. This is the first I'm hearing of it. So that's why I wanted to share this article. 
a former African state ruled by a white minority in present day Zimbabwe. So he was going to Brussels. That's where, that's all I heard about was that he was in London trying to get to Brussels. But now I'm hearing about this Rhodesia and the white minority. And like that gives it a whole different twist if he was a white supremacist. Right. But even if Ray had help, the evidence strongly pointed to him pulling the trigger. Ray's fingerprints were the only ones found on the gun. And there were no witnesses who had seen him with Raul during the nine months they supposedly knew each other. Um, and Ray's description of Raul has also changed a few times. Um, in FBI conspiracy, it's not clear when Coretta Scott King, widow of King, began to believe in Ray's innocence, but almost immediately after her husband's assassination, she suspected that the FBI, which had investigated the murder, was involved in it. There is abundant evidence of a major high-level conspiracy in the assassination of my husband, Martin Luther King Jr., Coretta King said at a press conference in 1999, according to the King Center. It was a theory she maintained until her death in 2006 that has so far never been proven. Yet, given the, the way that the Bureau had treated her and her family, her suspicion of the FBI and its conclusions about her husband's killer came from a very reasonable place, says John McMillan, a history professor at Georgia State University. During the 1950s and 60s, the FBI surveyed and harassed King his family and his associates, the Bureau wiretapped his phone and monitored his movements, taking advantage of times when he seemed particularly upset or depressed. In one instance, they sent him a tape that allegedly contained audio of him having an affair. And with it came a letter threatening King with public exposure if he didn't kill himself and claiming that the sender had evidence of other affairs. They, may, they might not have been involved in the murder, McMillan observes of the FBI, but I wish people knew the really shameful things that they did. Indeed, a former agent of the FBI's field office in Atlanta said the Bureau's tracking of King was second only to the way they went after Jimmy Hoffa. In 1975, a group of former FBI agents called on Congress to investigate this harassment. The investigation declassified scores of memos detailing the Bureau's abusive behavior, but did not reveal any evidence that the FBI had formally plotted his death. A different gunman, Coretta King's specific belief in Ray's innocence is a little tougher to explain. The King family started to publicly voice the opinion in 1997. That year, King's son Dexter Scott King visited Ray in prison to draw attention to the family's push to appeal his case. Even after Ray died in 1998 from complications caused by hepatitis C, the family continued to assert that there was. As Coretta King had said in 1999, overwhelming evidence that identified someone else, not James Earl Ray, as the shooter, and that Mr. Ray was set up to take the blame. The King family's belief in Ray's innocence was partly influenced by the strange case of Lloyd Jowers, who'd owned the restaurant below Ray's rented room in Memphis. For the first 25 years after King's death, Jowers did not claim any involvement in the murder, but after HBO conducted a televised mock trial about the assassination in 1993, in which uh, Ray gave his first public testimony and was found not guilty, Jowers declared that he had been part of a conspiracy to kill King and that Ray had been set up to take the fall. The other people involved in this conspiracy, Jowers said, included Memphis police officers, a mafia member, and the infamous Raul. So this mafia, Jowers, you know, ended up saying he was lying, whatever. But that is where I would have bought it, if I'm being completely honest. The second he mentioned mafia, I was like, okay, they might be onto something now. Because there was a lot. It was, it was either going to be having something to do with Cuba, because that's why JFK was assassinated, or it has to do with the mafia. 
So that was my theory from the jump. But when he said, you know, I was just kind of looking for some money, that sucks. Yeah. <laughs> Throws everything out the window. Oh, here we go. These claims led King's estate to sue Jowers. Here's where the money came from. In 1999, for a symbolic $100 in a wrongful death civil action. During the four-week trial in Memphis, a 12-person jury heard testimony from over 70 witnesses, but not Jowers, who didn't testify because there were no criminal charges at stake. The jury awarded the money to the estate, deciding that King's assassination had likely been the result of a conspiracy that involved Jowers, not Ray, as well as others, including government agencies. The day after the trial ended, Coretta King held a press conference in Atlanta to praise the decision. I wholeheartedly applaud the verdict of the jury, and I feel that justice has been well served in their deliberations, she said. The jury was clearly convinced by the extensive evidence that was presented during the trial that in addition to Mr. Jowers, the conspiracy of the mafia, local, state, and federal government agencies were deeply involved in the assassination of my husband. And it's important to note that this verdict was not a criminal conviction, as is sometimes er erroneously implied when this case services online. Between 1998 and 2000, the Department of Justice investigated Jowers' claims and the evidence in the civil trial and concluded that Jowers' claims weren't credible. Among the evidence was a recording of Jowers in which he suggested he was interested in fabricating his story for financial gain. So there are still remaining questions about how everything happened the day of King's assassination. As with most cases, the answer is yes, but among legal and historical scholars, there is a broad consensus that James Earl Ray though he may not have acted alone, is the gunman who shot Martin Luther King. Mm -mm. Woo! Oh, my God. Um, I did want to mention, even though it was just, like, for a minute that you were talking about, um, that they were saying that he, that Ray was traveling to Rhodesia, or what did the fuck? Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, fucking Dylan Roof, the kid that shot those oh, nine the people in the church yeah his manifesto was called the last rhodesian ew yeah because he was obsessed with all that shit yeah white supremacists oh man yep scary stuff oh, um that whole thing was like made my brain hurt i know because it just kept going in circles it did so I guess we have to just admit that James Earl Ray did kill MLK. For or, no you know, fucking, like, for no reason. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it's still, like I go back and forth on it all the time trying to explain. It's even sadder, like, for no reason, like, for nothing. Mm -hmm. I mean, not that there was, there had to have been a reason, you know what I mean? Like, it right. would have been good either way, but. Mm. There's always the argument that if it wasn't Ray, it was going to be somebody else. Yeah. Eventually. I mean, yeah, that is true. It's just shitty that Ugh, I know. It happened. It was all, such but... a and it was such a pivotal point in time in our country for all of this change and I don't know. Yeah. It's just sad. It's really sad. And um yeah, I don't know. Um another part of that Article said, um, 
Over the years, the assassination has been re-examined by the House Select Committee on Assassinations, the Shelby County, Tennessee District Attorney's Office, and three times by the U.S. Um, Justice Department. And all of these investigations have ended with the same conclusion, James Earl Ray killed Martin Luther King Jr. The House Committee acknowledged that a low-level conspiracy might have existed involving one or more accomplices to Ray, but uncovered no evidence to definitively prove this theory. In addition to the mountain of evidence against him, such as his fingerprints on the murder weapon and admitted presence at the rooming house on April 4th, Ray had a definite motive in assassinating King, hatred. According to his family and friends, he was an outspoken racist who told them of his intent to kill King. Ray died in 1998. Holly. Um, so yeah, that we will never know the full truth, but um, I don't know. I definitely think there was some kind of conspiracy there. Yeah. It would be crazy if they, (laughs) this is not funny, but it, you know, they'll eventually make like some kind of comedy skit on this, but it would be interesting if it came out that the FBI or somebody was planning the assassination. And then here comes this buffoon who pulls (laughs) it off and they're like, Oh, okay. It's out of our hands now. I feel like. Let's act like we care. That sounds like it was on, um, the boondocks but i oh. i do know that they have a plot in that show where martin luther king didn't die oh wow yeah that'd be awesome it's it's pretty good it's a pretty good episode um that whole show is crazy though mm-hmm. man, man. man this is still getting crazy though with um tyree nichols oh my gosh that and and okay, and that's a whole other discussion because you know those police were black men. Yeah. So that's a whole other discussion of um, you know authoritative internal racism or whatever that happens mm. with that sucks. Um, rest in peace, because damn, I can't believe that. Yep. Um, <sighs> his funeral was yesterday. Mm. And um, mm. Kamala Harris spoke at it. Mm. And I think, um, what the hell's his name? God damn it. We were just talking about him. <clears throat> um, how the hell? Oh, uh, fucking Reverend. Al Sharpton also. Oh, okay. Of course, mm. spoke at it, but it's just... Um, but he spoke about uh, Martin Luther King. Mm. He delivered the eulogy at the funeral yesterday. Mm-hmm. And um, he talked about it again yesterday, but that's crazy. Yeah, it honestly is super crazy. Very sad that people have to be afraid. He said, "Oh my god, oh, this is what he said in the at the funeral." He goes, "Um Okay, he says the reason why Mr. and Mrs. Wells who were Tyree's who are Tyree's parents, uh mm-hmm. what happens to Tyree is so personal to me." 
Mr. Sharpton said, referencing or referring to Mr. Nichols' stepfather and mother, is that five black men that wouldn't have had a job in the police department would not ever be thought of to be in an elite squad in the city that Dr. King lost his life, not far away from that balcony. You beat a brother to death. Oh, man. That is so fucking crazy. Yeah, like the symbolism of that. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Even that it's the same city, but wow. Yeah, that's crazy. Mm. And how everybody uh, everybody screamed whenever Kennedy told oh, that I... live audience. Yes. And that's really how it was because the thing is, is like mass shootings and assassinations, they happen a lot. Uh, you know, they happen pretty often. And so now it doesn't seem as shocking. But by, back then, news oh, traveled yeah. as, it, as it came. And also, it was just shocking that somebody would feel that entitled to take someone's life, um, let alone, you know, someone important's life. That scream gave me a chill. Like, it. Yeah. That's, it, um, that's new. And we keep talking, or I keep bringing this shit up, but in the help, they also have it where. Everyone heard. Yeah. Yeah. About, oh, God damn it. Mm. That, um, yeah, the, they heard that he had died and like people were starting to like get crazy. Yeah, that happened with um even when JFK was assassinated too. Uh white savior or not, you know, he was doing he was doing things for for the people from the White House. Yeah. So you know it was like deep. It was deep uh sadness. So people heard on live TV, you know, JFK has been shot and he's passed away or whatever. Everybody also was gasping and crying and calling each other and yeah, yeah crazy times. But um, I know I didn't touch on every single detail, and there is plenty more that I didn't get to, didn't cover. I didn't read the letter that the FBI sent. It was despicable, so you can find those things online. You can find the unsealed documents online. But don't, don't forget that in 2027, the actual disgraceful um, blackmailing tapes are going to be released where we will be able to hear so-called evidence of Martin Luther King's discretions. So that's something to keep in mind. However, the bottom line is uh, civil rights was, is even now I feel, um, it's evident that it was needed and, you know, sooner rather than later, but wow, it's, it's not that long ago that this was all happening in the sixties. Mm-hmm. And so it just puts it on to perspective. Um, somebody I, I read online, I was reading through the Martin Luther King tribute pages and stuff. And someone said that he probably would have been president by now. Right. Oh my goodness. N- knowing everybody he knew and getting the support of all politicians, you know, scary stuff. Mm-hmm. But um, we will, uh, we'll have to touch on some history another time. I definitely burned everybody's brains with some history at the beginning of 2023. Mm-hmm. And I can't wait for Daniela to give us the creeps again. Cause this was all pretty serious. Oh yeah. Um, which reminds me, I was going to ask you, did you want to <laughs> take the next three turns since I kind of hogged it? Um, sure. I've got a couple, maybe it won't be a series, but I have a couple things that must leave. It's only fair to offer you the slots there. So I am excited. If you're willing to go the next three times, I'm sure everybody's excited to hear what fun stuff you have. Yeah. 
I'll keep it spooky. Um, actually, spooky. one of them will be a true crime, but um, and it will be a conspiracy. I know this was this was not for everyone in the audience, so I appreciate those who listened to all three parts. It's all very interesting information um, that we should always be willing to at least discuss. So that's that. And um, rest in peace, Martin Luther King. His right. family, they kept it up. You know, that's pretty inspiring that his wife walked within, you know, weeks of him being dead. She was walking and marching for him and giving speeches saying, you know, he would want her there. So very yeah. proud, very awesome. She stood by his side. Please do not feel shy to share any opinions on the way I covered any of this historical information. Forgive me if I covered anything that was not accurate. I used the historychannel.com. I used um, Smithsonian. I used Britannica. Tried not to use Wikipedia. Probably should have because there's always little details that end up there that I, I miss, but did not use Wikipedia this time around. Make sure you guys go watch that FBI MLK Hulu documentary because it's unlike anything you've ever seen before. I guarantee it. Yeah, thank you guys for listening and giving me all your patience for the last couple of weeks. We look forward to sharing some spooky stories in the next coming weeks. We'll catch you next Friday. Thank you guys for listening. So, did you learn some history?